before, uh, you're able to, to sort of get a highly motivated uh, community of people executing a, a, a certain behavior, and that can be really compelling in a decentralized consensus network. Um, so on the investor side, we also think that this is uh, a more compelling asset class because for the first time, we can take positions in early stage companies and those positions are liquid and tradable on open, on open uh, markets with significant liquidity pools. So you can help uh, an entrepreneur along, but because you don't have the board seat and, and, and uh, these tokens that you own are liquid and tradable, if that entrepreneur moves in a direction that you no longer agree with, there's the opportunity to take money off the table. Um, and what it makes for, and what we've seen, is it makes for a much healthier relationship between entrepreneur and investor. Um, I kind of liken it to, to dating instead of uh, an, equity, uh, an equity position, which is like marriage. And most people who are married will tell you that the, the dating is a, is a much better relationship. <laughs> um, so, you know, we think it's a, a really compelling value proposition for investors, and uh, as a result, we think that there's going to be um, going to continue uh, interest in this space around around tokens, um, and you're also going to see a number of projects and uh, crypto economic system, systems pop up that we've never seen before. Um, we often find ourselves saying that the best, most interesting, most compelling projects in the space are ones that haven't even been thought up yet. We're just really at the knee of the curve of this new asset class. Um, and, you know, people get really concerned about the valuation today and where we are and, and whether we're over our skis in some assets. And I think it's probably safe to say that there's a certain overvaluation in, in some assets and certain, certainly some of the lower quality assets. But in general, the space is actually just starting out and, and there's going to be a tremendous amount of value creation. But, you know, someday we're, we're very confident someday relatively soon um, in the next few years, this ecosystem will be measured in trillions and not billions. Um, so we're excited about the growth prospects and then we're excited about sort of continuing to search for very high quality projects. Um, very talented technical teams is, is you know, what we look for. Building principally um, in this moment infrastructure layer. Um, so, you know, really compelling protocols and, and, and very interesting technical projects that, um, that present a significant zero to one innovation. So we don't hold a lot of application layer uh, tokens. We do support some application projects, but we think that it's just, you know, we're in very early days of, of this ecosystem and it's mostly about laying, you know, laying roads and highways and infrastructure at this point. And so uh, we look more like an infrastructure investor today than, um, than say, like a standard VC investing in, in applications. Um, that is in part because, uh, you know, we were founded uh, in line with a, uh, one of our founding investors' uh, thesis, of Fred Wilson from, from USV, uh, on the FAT protocols idea that in Web 1 and Web 2, all the value was accrued at the application layer. And this time around, Web3, which is the, the re-decentralization of the web, what we're going to see is much more value creation at the, at the protocol layer. Um, and you know, in Web1 and Web2, the sort of infrastructure that runs the whole internet, HTTP and, and TCP IP and HTML, and 
PGP and what have you, nobody made any money there. Um, and most of those protocols exist just at sort of the benevolent grants um, by, you know, by rich applications like Google and, and Facebook and what have you. Um, where this time around, the actual infrastructure and the people who create the infrastructure will be, uh, you know, will be the ones who, who will create significant value. Um, there will still be a lot of value at the application layer, I think, over time. But um, in this moment, we're most excited about, about that protocol layer. Um, and yeah, I guess I, I don't really have anything else. Uh, we'll, we'll talk about more about our thesis and, and what we think about crowd sales. Actually, I will mention one thing about, about sort of this crowd sale movement is that what we're seeing is uh, sort of iteration and innovation in, in crowd sales right now. And we're going to continue to see sort of different mechanisms and, and people try different things. And we think that that's healthy and, and we agree with that. And basically, um, you know, hope, we're hoping that the, the, the ecosystem generally moves towards greater compliance um, with more KYC and, and, and maybe some controls on who can actually participate in, cert, in certain crowd funds. But, um, you know, I think there will be different options for different projects and it will come down to what the nature of your project is, what, you know, what you're trying to build, what kind of funding you need to build that and then also what your token is. Um, and the, the token mechanism will really sort of lead you towards a certain uh, funding mechanism, whether it's an open crowdfund because you need to maximize decent decentralization, because let's say it's like a reputation token where you want it in as many people's hands as possible, or whether it's um, a project that is not built yet very technically sophisticated, not obvious, and may not work out, and then that would be something where you should probably go towards a KYC model that is exclusive to uh, sophisticated investors who understand um, the significant risk that they're taking. And uh, we'll talk a lot about just the different models that, that, that are out there, and, and we think that it's healthy that people are trying different things. And um, I don't think there will be a one size fits all, and I don't think there will be a model that wins it. Um, I think you'll probably see maybe half a dozen to, to a dozen different models that work depending again on the nature of what's being built, the maturity of what's being built, and the nature of the token question. Um, and then just the last point we talk a lot about with a lot of different projects is if you're thinking about a token in your, uh, you know, in your decentralized network, it's crucially important that that token drive network effects on the network and be, have a central function to the network. Um, and that's actually, this sort of a two-prong two importance. One, because if it's just a rent-seeking token that extracts fees from, from the network, that's much more likely to be classified as a security because you're, you're, you, know, you have the expectation of profits from the work of others. Um, but it's also just not that interesting because it's going to hold back net, network effects. And, and the great thing about these open source communities that have incentivization built in at the protocol layer is that you can accelerate net network effects with rocket fuel, which are these tokens. Um, and so we, we really try to impress upon the ecosystem generally and our portfolio projects that when you're designing a token that you ensure that it has a very central function, that it couldn't be forked out of the network, for example, and that it drive value on the network and not extract value on the network. 
we should have said at the beginning that there's going to be time for questions after we're all done speaking, so definitely think of questions we're all happy to answer. Uh, so Sam and I both work at Deva Voice in Plimpton. We're lawyers. Uh, we like to say that we're blockchain lawyers, which is kind of saying you just started being a lawyer because blockchain <laughs> sort of just started. Um, before I scare you all about all of the legal problems you're going to have, uh, I would like to mention that Brian is apparently dating much better than I ever dated because <laughs> I'm very happily married and had a mostly bad experiences dating. Uh, uh, so, so look, if there's one thing you take away from the lawyers tonight, it's don't commit fraud. Okay? And uh, yes, it's kind of a joke, but please remember that, okay? Because the more people who commit fraud, the more regulation is going to happen, and the more regulation that's going to happen, it's going to stifle all of the good stuff that Matt and Ryan were talking about. And we at on the Devil Voice and Plimpton blockchain team, we are really excited about all of the good stuff that's happening in the ecosystem because it is, as, as both Ryan and Matt indicated, driving the future of technology in ways that are, are going to be really interesting and change people's lives. So don't commit fraud. What do I mean by don't commit fraud? Um, I think there's two things just to keep in mind. Right? If you're greedy and you're doing this just to raise money and take the money out of the system, then yes, people are not going to like that and there's a greater chance that you will get scrutinized for that. The second thing is you have to be open about what you're doing. You have to make disclosure about what your project is. The white paper is extremely important. You have to make disclosure about how your token functions, what its features are. That's very important. You have to tell people how you're going to use the proceeds. That's hugely important. If you're going to use the proceeds to buy an island in the Bahamas, that's a different kind of use of proceeds than I think most people are expecting when they buy a token. So you really do need to be upfront about what it is that you're doing all the way around. And that's where Sam and I and our colleagues come in to try to help. We try to help you uh, figure out what your, what your token mechanic is going to look like, figure out what your disclosures are going to look like. We help you drafting agreements and stuff like that that help everyone in the industry understand what it is that you're doing. The next point that I want to make is everybody talks about trying to avoid having a security with their token. And there are really good reasons for that because the regulatory regime around securities is much greater than the regulatory regime around cryptocurrencies or software licenses, which is sort of the way that I like to think about most tokens. But just because the regulatory regime is heavier, it doesn't mean that you should say out of hand, that's a bad thing to do. Some of the really interesting projects that we're working on right now are actually intentionally making themselves securities because they want to show how a security can sit on a blockchain, be held on a blockchain, be traded directly on a blockchain. They see that as a great future use of blockchain technology. There are lots of very large banks around the world that are scared of that kind of advancement 
in securities trading. And so that's a very powerful place to be if you want to make the commitment to be there. I think Ryan and Matt both did a good job of explaining sort of what we look for when we're evaluating whether a token is a security or not. Uh, shout out to our friends at Coinbase, Ruben over there. You should say hi to him later. He's a very smart fellow. Um, we did a project with them and a bunch of others that uh, was open sourced at the beginning of December, which is a memo on securities law analysis in the US on blockchain tokens. We've talked about that analysis with folks at the SEC, and so we're trying to be very involved in helping to shape how people are thinking about when a token is a security and when it's not a security. The last thing before I turn it over to Sam is gonna talk about cryptocurrencies and money transmitter issues. The last thing that I'll say is you're also probably thinking about doing your token launch on an international basis. Just because you comply with US law doesn't mean you comply with the law of every other jurisdiction. Just because you comply, just because you locate yourself in Switzerland and do your token launch from Switzerland or from the Netherlands or from Liechtenstein or from Gibraltar or from Estonia, how many other funny jurisdictions? Singapore, Singapore yeah. right? Just because you locate your token launch there, it, it, frankly, it doesn't matter if you're selling tokens from the moon and you're selling them into the United States, you've got to deal with US laws. You're selling from the moon, you're selling them into Japan, you've got to deal with Japanese laws. So it's very important to think about the international implications of what you're doing. And we've got a team of lawyers who are building around the world to think about the, the issues for blockchain tokens. So I hope I didn't scare you all too much. And what's the one thing I told you you have to remember as a result of my talk? Don't commit fraud. Well, don't commit fraud, all right. This is great. I'll turn it over to Sam. Thank you very much, Lee. Um, so I might add another key takeaway, uh, which is, uh, and this may scare you a bit more, and that key takeaway is don't go to jail for committing uh, unlicensed uh, money transmitter activities. So let's, uh, let's sort of look sort of step, step back and look at the ecosystem from 10,000 feet and ask ourselves, what are the worst things that have happened so far? Uh, I think um, our primary case study there would be uh, Silk Road, which uh, many folks in the audience I'm sure are familiar with. So Silk Road itself, as you probably know, was a really terrible thing in terms of the, the marketplace for all things nefarious and bad. Um, and it was uh, shut down by law enforcement. A lot of people went to jail uh, who were involved in it. But if you look closely and ask yourself the question, who went to jail and why, uh, there are some very important insights that are very relevant to uh, what's happening with the overall blockchain ecosystem. So folks are probably, probably know, and it's obvious, that there's one set of people who went to jail. Those were the people who were actually transacting on Silk Road. That is, those were the people who were buying and selling the missiles, the drugs, uh, whatever. However, uh, folks probably know that uh, Silk Road was a Bitcoin-only exchange. There was another set of people who went to jail, and those were the people who traded dollars to Bitcoin for people who wished to transact on the Silk Road market meaning people who are not at all directly involved in the operation of the market itself, 
and were merely facilitating the transfer of the cryptocurrency that served as the medium of exchange for the market, they went to jail as well. And why did they go to jail? Because they were engaged in unlicensed money transmitter activities, which means that they were intermediating value in an unregulated fashion. And so when folks step back and ask yourselves, what are the highest risk issues that face projects? Certainly, the area of securities regulation is one. But another area revolves around the regulation of the money transmission mechanism, or in, in our terms, the value transmission mechanism by which the market functions. And so what does that mean? That means another fundamental question that every project should be asking themselves is, what does my token do in terms of acting as a medium of exchange or an intermediation of value between other media of exchange or value sets, okay? So that means, for example, if you have a token that has certain features that what we call utility-like, meaning they provide the user with certain abilities to perform work on the system to have certain rights with respect to the system itself, that leads to one legal result. However, if you have a token or a project that functions as a medium of exchange between other cryptocurrencies, between other tokens, and you are in fact acting as the intermediary between two different universes or two different stores of value, which in theory any token can be, then you face the risk of being deemed a money transmitter uh, and therefore you face the risk of potentially being subject to regulation. What adds another layer of complexity here is this is both a federal and a state level uh, legal regime. So what that means is if you are a money transmitter as a matter of federal law, you must still engage with the separate question of whether you are a money transmitter under each of the 50 states. And the consequences are much more severe uh, for purposes of federal law, but the point is that this is a, an analysis that must be done both on the federal level and on the state level. And similarly, going back to Lee's point about how to think about this from a multi-jurisdictional basis, um, the thing to remember here is in the post 9-11 world, governments and regulators are focused on money laundering issues in a way that they have heretofore not been. And, the, and there is very little tolerance for money laundering because the general consensus is now that money laundering equals terrorism. And so you therefore have to ask yourself, am I safe with respect to the money transmitter uh, uh, laws in the United States? Am I also safe with respect to similar laws that exist in pretty much every um, uh, developed economy? And so again, what we're talking about here is understanding that uh, in terms of the major issues facing projects and the major legal and the key legal analysis that should be done in connection with any project is number one, as Lee said, is any element of your project and the associated tokens something that may make it a security as a matter of uh, law? But in addition to that, is there any element of your project or your token that could make it a money transmitter for purposes of the relevant jurisdiction 
uh, that you are uh, analyzing under. And again, if you are operating a if you are operating a project that will operate and make sales in different jurisdictions, then you be prudent to ask yourself that question with respect to any jurisdiction uh, that you are operating in. Um, so I'll stop there. So so so. Uh, we now have two key takeaways, which is number one, don't commit fraud, and number two, don't commit unlicensed money transmission activities. <laughs> Fraud's easier to say. <laughs> so you've heard a, a good overview. There you go. Good overview of the, the power and potential of the sale method, um, but be sober when you go about doing it, and uh, don't commit fraud, and don't uh, go to jail. So it takes uh, take time for Q&A now. Yes, <clears throat> My name is Chris Brown. I'm with Blockstream. Um, I'm also the co-author of SSL and go back to the PGPAs, et cetera. Um, has anybody investigated um, Jobs Act Title III, the, the one with the million dollar limit or whatever, as a good way to start playing around with this now in a more safe fashion, because that regular people can buy, theoretically, uh, you can do it for more than ass assets. I think you can do it for debts and other instruments. Um, I'm not seeing anything there. I'm looking for a better way. I'm very concerned about uh, prosecution of some of the ICOs stifling the industry. Yeah, that's a very good question. So we've actually done some thinking about Title III of the Jobs Act and whether or not it, it's regulation crowdfunding that was promulgated by the SEC in connection with that. The, the short answer is you probably won't raise enough money using just regulation crowdfunding to meet your goals. Reg crowdfunding has a $1 million limit. Uh, if you're going to raise between $500,000 and a million, there's a whole bunch of SEC filings that are required. That shouldn't necessarily stop you, but most of the projects that we're speaking with are looking to raise more money than that. Yeah, I, I, I mean, look, I, I, I think it's a really valid way to go. Um, one, one of the interesting questions that we're sort of grappling with right now for a couple of clients that are thinking about security token offerings is what the transfer agent rules are from the SEC and how an issuer of a security uh, really keeps track of who owns that security on the blockchain. Now you may say the purpose of the blockchain is so that you can't keep track of everybody who owns it. The flip side of that is if you're going to pay dividends, if you're going to pay interest on a debt security, etc., uh, if you're going to give people some kind of voting rights, uh, you do need ways to let people know what's happening uh, in connection with the security. So there's a bunch of areas still in development here. Let me just mention another part of the JOBS Act, which was Regulation A plus is what they call it. Originally, Regulation A was essentially a limited public offering that allowed you to raise up to $5 million. The JOBS Act raised that limit to $50 million. It's still a limited public offering, but just like crowdfunding, anybody can buy it and you become a public company that way. Uh, that's another area that some people we're speaking with are looking at for fundraising purposes in the US, 
and so i think you'll start to see some more movement in in one or both of those areas over the course of time. i'll also mention really quick there is one company we're aware of that did raise money um, uh, using the the jobs act it's a company called cpay and they're based in oregon nothing tokenized wasn't an ico or token sale and they did raise less than five hundred thousand dollars um, but that's the only example um, of a blockchain company. I think they do, um, uh, it's a payment method for medical marijuana. It's probably an Oregon joke in there somewhere, but that's what they do. I think there's a California joke in there. Yeah, now yeah, too, yeah, that's so. true, that's true, that's true. Thank you. And Eva Blaisdell, founder of California Space Center. I am preparing ICO Q3, Q4 uh, out of Los Angeles. And it's aimed at enabling a new space ecosystem, uh, going beyond rockets and satellites, which is kind of old-fashioned way of looking at the space. And we are very much attracted to the concept also that Matt was describing, which we already experienced, which is attracting tremendous network of people who are amplifying our commitment, both through contribution on the financial side and enthusiasm. Um, so our uh, paradigm is more complex than one transaction approach. Uh, we are puzzled because there are not too many people to choose from when it comes to ICO services. Uh, and most of them are aiming at simplified type of transactions. Two, most of them are from technology standpoint and now operating a little bit as uh, investment bankers. Uh, so my question is, uh, where should we look to discover those talents? And two, uh, if I may, last question, uh, if you allow me, a uh, gray area between token and equity. Uh, one of our goals is to feed starving space startups, as well as my startups, which are not starving, but I want to use Coper Copernicus name of the currency. And we are being warned that if we have a token which will transfer into infusion of capital, uh, we shouldn't be concerned because we are operating on the token equity. And last but not least, I love your statement that we can date with the investors <laughs> the So I want to leave existing system behind, so this is a you know, terrific point you made. Yeah, so I guess there are two parts to that. Two parts to that question. Um, one, the first part was the service providers for token sales. It's it's really interesting. I obviously won't give a, a whitelist or anything up here, but I will say that the um, it's actually not an industry for which there's a lot of transparency. Um, this is something that we have been uh, thinking about a lot and really trying to um, push for new standards and disclosure and uh, conflicts of interest. A lot of uh, projects that we find are um, that talk about or promote uh, token sales have a vested interest in them or have uh, a stake in them in one way, shape, or form that isn't disclosed. Um, it's also very hard to find a lot of these uh, projects. There are some that are very well known. Obviously, Argon Group, Bandex um, are just very well known, but there are some that are not as well known and a little bit more difficult to discover. Um, and uh, people that perform a variety of uh, services. So you think about service providers for token sales, uh, if you usually either have a technology provider who writes smart contract or creates the token, and if you are doing that in-house, you have someone that 
hopefully audits that or uh, gives some kind of external feedback. You have someone that runs the marketing campaign uh, that does social media designs bounty campaigns. Um, hopefully you also have someone that helps with the token design um, and make sure that the kind of token economics and the crypto economic design is sound. Please work with someone uh, like that. We don't like evaluating projects where they haven't really thought that thought that through, even if they're very, very well-meaning. Um, and then obviously there's the, uh, the legal groups. Uh, Depo Voice is uh, one of the leaders. And uh, the piece that they did with Coinbase is fantastic. Um, so even for a non-lawyer, I recommend uh, going and reading that. Just to talk a little bit about your second point and the sort of complexity issue that you're raising. Uh, Look, we'd love to talk with you about that because we are. The easy stuff is fun, the complex stuff is challenging, and we like both being fun and challenged. So, uh, I'd be very interested to hear what some of your ideas are. One of the, to, to my mind, one of the really cool things about this space right now is the level of creativity that people have, not just in terms of the projects that they're doing, but also in terms of the way they're thinking about tokens, the way they're thinking about using the proceeds. For example, we're working with one client right now that's gonna take, I think 20% of the proceeds from their token launch and use that for impact investing. So people are really trying to do lots of different things through this ecosystem. And the, the, the short answer is yes, some things will be harder if you want them to be harder, that doesn't mean that they can't be done, and it doesn't mean that they can't be solved. It just means you gotta do a little bit more work on it. I'll look at that last point too. Just the, the amount of creativity we're gonna see in this industry is um, is pretty astounding. And uh, if you have an idea, come talk to us too. We work with projects for the crypto economic design stuff. And we always just love working with people in this industry. Um, there's so much talent and so much creativity um, that are really, really is mind blowing. All of us love, love working there. Yeah. Um, the Howie test, um, one of the legs of the Howie test is this notion of a common enterprise. Um, can you give us just your definition of what that means? I wish I could give you an easy definition of what that means. Unfortunately, the courts have taken several different approaches to common enterprise for Howie test purposes. The, the short answer is it's kind of hard not to find a common enterprise in these situations we more look to the expectation of profits from others, uh, from, from, the, from the work of others, or what we call sort of passive profiting. Uh, and, and that's really where we think the game is for the analysis of whether or not a token will, will be a security. And again, that's based on how the to token functions. I think Ryan's point about rent-seeking tokens is a very good one. Uh, so the I, I wish I had a really easy answer for you. Um, I guess for my sake, it's good that I don't have an easy answer because people need to give me a call. But uh, it, it's, it's very challenging. One of the things that the court in Howie made clear, and there's a, a later Supreme Court case called Edwards, the court also made this point clear, is that the definition of investment contract is supposed to be a flexible definition. It's not supposed to be um, hemmed in to sort of traditional notions of the security. So there is a way, there are ways for the courts and the SEC to interpret it that may not be as favorable to the industry. Hi guys, uh, I'm Jazeer, um, and uh, I have a small uh, crypto investment fund. 
uh, it's also been picked up by Thomas CEOs. Uh, so I've got two questions. Uh, first for you, Matt. Uh, you mentioned that uh, payment tokens are not um, easily defensible to fiat, but um, most fiat uh, coins are cash, if you will. Um, when, when you want to tra uh, transact with them, they're often uh, just transmitting fees uh, that the credit card companies or other uh, banks will charge. And so uh, do you really think that um, just having transmission of, of value at a really low fee structure isn't enough to uh, take a service and make it better if we put it um, on the blockchain? And then I guess my second question uh, for, for the legal guys is uh, you brought up a lot of concerns about um, the law that it, it makes sense almost to, to spend up to part of your time becoming a lawyer and really becoming well-versed in this, but I think a lot of companies just want to put their equity into the blockchain and um, fund themselves through uh, the crowd as opposed to funding themselves through traditional means. Is there a, a, a you know, 101 for, for people who don't necessarily want to do something complex but just want to put their equity um, onto uh, blockchain? I'll show the first one. A fantastic question. I'll draw a quick distinction to the the piece with the payment tokens wasn't uh, necessarily tokens, uh, crypto versus fiat, but uh, tokens versus other crypto. Um, so the ability to accept Bitcoin or Ethereum and all the ease that happens there, um, rather than just acquiring an individual token. Um, but be a fantastic question, and it, it a much broader issue in terms of um, services that accept crypto uh, versus services that accept fiat and the transaction fees, which largely end up being hidden from users in the fiat system. I mean, I think it's one of the challenges uh, broadly is that you can shuffle fee structures around much more readily than you can on the blockchain. Um, but long term, uh, the friction there is, is less. So I'd like to maybe just add a, a point with, with respect to payments and, and remittances. I spent a fair amount of time uh, looking at remittances and potentially doing remittances on the blockchain and, um, and, and did a fair amount of remittance on the blockchain as well. And I would say trying to or, or expecting that just low fee structure in blockchain transactions will be sufficient to drive demand to a given service is probably not sufficient. Um, in fact, certainly not sufficient. That's for a number of reasons, but the two primary ones are the underlying volatility of uh, the blockchain asset that you're transacting, unless we get stable coins right, which we haven't really got stable coins right in a decentralized format yet. Um, uh, is usually far greater than the transaction fee that you're going to pay in a, in a fiat system, especially in, in the developed world context. Um, and then secondly, when there, so, so Matt talked about how a fiat systems have a lot of uh, fees baked in that, that users don't see, but I would actually argue that um, onboarding and offboarding, and certainly the first mile, last mile, to getting into tokens and, and cryptocurrency also has a lot of fees that, that you that that users don't typically uh, notice. And so uh, it's really that last mile question with respect to remittances and and uh, payments that ends up killing these transactional uh, payment networks and, and thusly we really haven't once seen one uh, take off and be successful yet. I know I'm a legal guy, but I'm gonna also chime in on payments very quickly. Um, I think I, I, when most people came in, I handed out something about the FinTech podcast that we do. We had an interview that dropped on, I think May 22nd, with Professor Tevneet Suri at MIT, who studied the impacts of M-Pesa in Kenya. 
and you want to talk about differentiated payment system between the United States of America, which is supposedly a first world country, and M-Pesa in Kenya, it's when you hear how easy it is to transfer money through M-Pesa in Kenya, it's astonishing that we don't have something like that in the US. Uh, and I think the points that both Ryan and Matt made are, are really valid points and are going to be challenges for some time to come, in part because of the entrenched interests in the financial services industry, and in part because uh, it, it takes time to get the technology right. On your legal question, I think the sort of easiest way to think about when a token is not a security <coughs> is to try to make sure that the token doesn't involve somebody getting paid. Okay, that goes back to Ryan's point about rent-seeking tokens. But it's even broader than that. You're, in order for something to be an investment contract, you're looking for some payment to be made to the person who made the quote-unquote investment. So if there's no return on that investment, there's no payment on that investment, you're probably reasonably safe. And you're going to say, well, wait a minute, secondary market liquidity in these tokens. Ryan talked about that. Matt talked about that. The SEC has been fairly definitive that just because a secondary trading market develops in something doesn't mean that it's an investment contract, doesn't mean that it's a security. Otherwise, if that was the definition, you know, antique cars, there's right. secondary market in those. Uh, Beanie Babies or whatever the popular stuffed animals are these days. <laughs> secondary trading market in those, right? Secondary trading market in Barbie dolls and et cetera, et cetera. Not everything is a security, thankfully. So you do need to just look at whether or not the enterprise is paying out to the token holders, and that'll be a pretty good guide for you. My name is uh, Gary Smith. I'm uh, founder of Rebuild Corporation, and uh, my question is for Ryan. Um, one of the things that I'm uh, struggling to come to terms with is what does this mean for valuation? I'm in C right now, I'm considering a, an ICO for Series A or some sort of hybrid approach. And of course, I'm as an entrepreneur, I'm focused on exiting. What's, when I exit, what's my question that I'm going to be asked is what's my valuation? So I'm wondering if. I guess it's early days, but I'm wondering if anyone has either done rounds and done these valuations. You know, I'm perhaps going to exit to a more traditional purchaser of, of my company at some stage. And they're going to ask me traditional questions about, well, we're going to have the argument. I'm just wondering if some thoughts have been put into that, who's doing the work around valuation, or whether some of this has already been done. Okay, well, um, if it's application layer, that's typically easier to value because you can you can often say like derive what the token should be worth based on say throughput throughput through the network so for example like i did analysis on on auger which derived what the fair value of rep should be considering uh throughput uh through the auger network um, and that's pretty easy to do if it's protocol layer then uh that fair market valuation ends up being you know, much more abstract, uh, and, and you find yourself in a more speculative position. Uh, so it, it's just diff more difficult to value because, for example, like Ethereum, you know, we don't know what Ethereum is eventually going to be, what the use cases are, are, are that are actually going to flourish on it, 
or, or you know, the same with Tezos or, uh, or IPFS or a number of, of these different protocol layer tokens. And because you just don't know what is going to sort of be cultivated in this garden or this protocol, uh, that becomes a lot more difficult. Um, and then you yourself looking to like have an exit and you move on. So um, if you're gonna do a like a seed round of equity to say uh, venture investors and then in parallel to that, you're going to do a token round to, to a community to try to propagate a community around, around your network. Um, you're gonna have to have a really compelling um, argument for both sides of that equation, how they fit together. And actually, we've seen projects recently not explain that coherently. And you know, unfortunately, they haven't been punished for that yet. But I think they probably will be over time. And that's, um, you know, there has to be a level of coherence of how the equity and the token fits together. If 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 it ends up being both, and not just be, you know, you're trying to to, to sort of stick your hands in both cookie jars sort of thing. Um, and well, then, I think the reason I'm quite happy that market approach is to mitigate some of the risk around the uncertainty of ICOs. Sorry? Ironically, uh, the reason I want to consider a hybrid approach is to mitigate some of the uncertainties and risks around ICOs and valuation. For, for your own position, right? Correct. Yeah, but see, that's the thing. You know, myself as an investor, I would actually prefer to see a, a founding team be very committed philosophically to building a distributed network and and you know be 100% committed that this project is really interesting and not be just so worried about themselves and how they're going to maximize their own return. So um, again, you know, it comes back to having a reason for that and that being and that creating value for the network because it's really about driving this network effect and not and not just you know if, if you create a really cool uh, project that. That, that can realize these network effects and people can get excited about that, you're going to do fine financially, right? Um, and I would just sort of worry about that, creating the great products. So first, uh, thank you very much for putting this event together. Uh, it's very uh, dedicated. Uh, my name is Daniel Chaplin. I'm uh, the founder of uh, the Baby Forum. Uh, I have a question about uh, a paper that was released by the OCC uh, last year, uh, which is a new charter for fintech companies. So how much does it impact token sales and everything uh, in this space? Um, so, so you're asking about the uh, OCC's uh, fintech charter initiative, um, which if you look at it from a um, public uh, choice theory perspective, uh, one way to look at that is the OCC uh, attempting to uh, assert jurisdiction uh, over the, a part of the market where it uh, currently doesn't have jurisdiction. Um, and so the question of, of to what extent will the FinTech Charter uh, impact uh, this ecosystem, I think the first order answer is it's not clear. Uh, we, we have to wait and see. But uh, if I had to guess, I would say not much. Um, I think uh, clearly one disconnect in terms of market perception uh, versus what is actually going to happen is the restrictiveness and sort of bad, not cool things associated with getting the charter. Um, I think you know when you when you sort of look at it from out here on the West Coast, 
you say, oh, this is a, this is a nice thing. It's going to let us uh, uh, do banking. It's going to let us do all these things that we couldn't, and everything's going to be great. For someone like me who has spent uh, many years representing clients before the OCC, the Fed, the FDIC, and the other federal banking agencies, uh, a lot of times it's really not pleasant, and there are really uh, profound uh, impacts uh, on on the balance sheet, the operations, the activities, the governance, pretty much every aspect of the company uh, that are in many ways antithetical to the way to tech firms like to run themselves. And I don't really think the market uh, and folks who are thinking about the FinTech Charter uh, really have fully, uh, fully understand uh, the implications, uh, some of them quite negative from their perspective, that would uh, result uh, if they were to get the charter. Um, I think where the charter will have more of an impact and where the debate is, is, is perhaps more intense is around uh, the fintech-driven uh, lenders, uh, SoFi, Prosper, OnDeck, uh, etc. And there, I think we saw, this is not directly related to blockchain, but nevertheless an important and interesting development is folks may have seen in the news that SoFi uh, is applying for what's called an industrial loan company charter. Um, this is a rather esoteric and arcane uh, uh, banking charter. Um, but what it essentially does is allows, if anyone gets it, and if SoFi gets it, is it would allow SoFi to operate uh, like a full service bank uh, without being regulated by the Fed. So if you ask them why they're doing it, that's one of the key strategic drivers. And certainly if you said, what is an optimal equilibrium for a FinTech-driven lender is to get the benefits associated with being a full-service bank, in particular the ability to take uh, deposits and uh, not have the burdens, uh, in particular being regulated by the Fed, which is, uh, which is not pleasant. So, uh, to sort of restate, I don't think the FinTech charter uh, matters as much to the blockchain ecosystem. Uh, it matters more to folks who are trying to do banking uh, or doing bank-like activities, lending in particular, uh, but we'll have to wait and see in terms of what uh, the ultimate impacts are going to be. So, so far we've seen a very haphazard approach to ICO valuations and it's very, been this very crowdsourced kind of side effect. I'm curious to hear how each of you think about actually valuing these networks and valuing the actual projects behind them. Not just at this stage, but also beyond the ICO stage as these projects develop and mature. Yeah, to some degree. Yeah. Well, uh, maybe, so Ryan talked about evaluation. I think it's a, um, it was a really good, uh, it was a really good point, really key point. Um, and the other point that I'll add to that is just that valuing, we often compare, or it's, it is often, uh, company valuations are often compared to token valuations, and they're really apples and oranges. Uh, they're not really the same thing. And a lot of the methods that are uh, typically used for company valuations don't quite apply because of the different dynamics that the tokens themselves have. Um, and even tokens themselves don't lend themselves to any single kind of method of valuation. Um, uh, if there's a broader question there about you know, what resources exist for people to maybe not value tokens but evaluate uh, the opportunities, um, there are a wide variety, um, and uh, I think we haven't seen all the uh, all the resources that will exist. Uh, it's really exciting because the kind of investors that are involved in this space, or the kind of token sale participants, um, are just so diverse. Uh, really quick, um, so point well, fund. So, so off of that, uh, 
Um, these tokens are getting inherent value, right? Like there's an open market there, they are being traded, there's inherent valuation. And so you can argue, of course, that it's not comparative to a company, that's fine. Um, even as you see as like companies evolved into the internet age, right? Well, the standards of what got evaluated and what became a basis for evaluation changed drastically. And that's gonna happen with token networks as well. And with that, my curiosity here, the question, the deeper question there is, these are already getting valued. How do you think of the way the space is valued them at current and what is going to shake out to be a consistent way for people to look at the reality of, okay, this network evaluates this monitor based on what underlying is? I think it's a pretty complex question. Um, and in terms of inherent value, I, there's probably a, a lot of, um, I mean, so many of these projects actually have uh, users, and a lot of the, um, there are very, very many, but the number of the top, like, 100 tradable tokens, um, less than half of them would. And some tokens that are trading um, don't actually have minimum viable products yet. And so the inherent valuation of tokens at that scale um, is probably not happening. Um, we'll get there, and it's great, I think, that a lot of these projects have the resources to start executing on the plans that they do. Um, but a lot of the data that would be used for these kind of valuation models um, just don't exist because the projects are so uh, mature and so early stage. Not a bad thing, it's just a reality of the space right now. Yeah, I, I agree with that point. And, and further to that point, I, I would also mention that I don't see a greater level of sophistication, say here in the Valley, uh, in valuing a lot of early stage startups in other industries than, you know, than yeah. what we see here. So uh, at the end of the day, um, you know, these are, are, are risky assets that people are trying to come to some understanding of valuation on, but uh, it's inherently difficult, and that needs to be recognized. And I think one point to add here, to go back to our initial discussion in terms of what rights are associated with tokens. So if, if we had, you know, a, a Wall Street analyst sitting here and he said, how do you value a company or what's a baseline for value a company? They'll say, oh, we look at something like book value, which is the accounting value of the assets on the balance sheet of the company. But that assumes, and what's built into that mechanism is the fact that the holder of a claim has a right to those companies' assets. And so therefore you can tie the value of your claim to the assets of the firm. Uh, and as we talked about before, one way that tokens are completely different from traditional securities is they generally do not provide any claim whatsoever on the assets of the project or the firm. And so if you just sort of step back and look at it from like an academic or theoretical perspective, uh, it's quite different from the traditional methods we've used to value claims on firms because there isn't, there aren't claims in the same way that uh, we have in traditional finance. So I think that's just sort of a key point that goes back to our discussion about what are the rights associated with the token and how the rights associated with tokens uh, are, are, in, are profoundly different and distinct from the rights associated with the financial instruments uh, we uh, have heretofore seen in this space and seen the financial markets uh, more generally. Sean Gilbert, uh, Technos Associates. Um, kind of keeping track with the valuation component, um, more from a regulatory side, right, because tokens are not inherently considered uh, securities, right, I personally have had a number of clients come across my desk where 
they've raised traditional VC financing, either Series A or C or whatnot, um, and then go on to raise considerable amounts of money in a token sale. Um, now, from a compliance standpoint with regards to 718s and 409As, where they're actually um, you know, providing options to their employees, um, because the token sales aren't considered securities, they're not, at least to my knowledge, viewed as uh, material events with respect to uh, establishing a new threshold for value. Um, how, I guess, uh, I'm more interested in the, with Sam and uh, Lee, your standpoint of how do we incorporate that? I mean, obviously, the company is raising uh, you know, $35 million, for example, for Brave, right? And they must, they might have raised a different amount of money from, uh, from venture capital. When you're actually looking at the value of Brave, how does that token sale flow through to the value of the company? I, I think all these questions on valuation and exit are, are we're going to see new developments in that in this area over the course of time. I don't know that there's a sort of a static answer that you can give. Uh, just strictly from a tax standpoint, I think if you raise money in a token sale, that's treated as revenue. It's obviously a one-time large revenue event. Uh, to the extent it becomes part of the assets of the company, then so it's deferred revenue almost in a way. Right. Uh, so, you know, presumably that plays into the valuation of, of the company. But I don't know that there are sort of strict legal rules around how valuation gets run. And I do think that, uh, as, as I said in my earlier remarks, one of the really important disclosure points in these token sales is around the use of proceeds so that the industry can sort of understand what percentage uh, of the proceeds are going to go towards the further development of, of the, the protocol or the, the, the network or whatever it is, what percentage are going to go for other uses, etc. And, and so I think that is another factor that, that will play into, into valuation. I guess the last point I'll make, and I think this touched on something that Ryan said earlier, is by and large, the companies that are creating these blockchain projects, be they infrastructure projects or app projects, are really software companies. And so maybe the model to use is looking at how other software companies have been valued over the course of time. Uh, I, I think that keeps changing. Uh, one of the really interesting things to me, for example, I've uh, been sort of in and around the brokerage and banking industry for much of my career. Uh, there was a point where banks got really good valuations and software firms got kind of lousy valuations. Uh, then all of a sudden people realized that bank revenues tended to be less uh, um, No, tended to be less consistent whereas software firms, their revenues tended to be more consistent. People like consistency in their valuations, so you saw software firm valuations go up as a result of that. So it depends on what your metric is for valuation, I guess, at the end of the day.
<clears throat> Thanks for setting this up. My name is Jan Gonge, uh, entrepreneur, formerly in the white sharing space. Um, I, like the, I like Matt's comment about crypto economics. Um, seems to be the big challenge. So this question is for both Matt and Lee. Uh, how do you get certainty around the, um, the limit in supply of token? So how, how, is the, how eventually does that get negotiated? Because at the end of the day, what prevents a company from either creating a new token derivative if there's very high demand? And so high, because ultimately that's, you know, valuation is, you know, the valuation of both demand and supply. So if something like Brave has a hot ticker, why can't they create that two, that three, and just cash it in? And, and, and from, an, from an investor and a security standpoint, you spend a lot of time with lawyers and articles and corporations and all that stuff to make sure that doesn't happen. So how do you do that? I understand that you could do that cryptographically if the project is fully on the blockchain. How do you do that for things that are hybrid also? Um, yeah, I'll say first. I'll, uh, I'll answer first, but uh, um, you'll probably speak better to the rights that token holders have or don't have um, relative to investors. But this tension that will ultimately emerge uh, between the investors in the company and the token holders that are more like users um, for the of the product and service that the uh, company is uh, has launched. Um, there is kind of an inevitable attention here because the contract that the company has with its users, um, while written on the blockchain as a smart contract, which could define things like supply, um, is not uh, necessarily you know, by itself without other regimes. Um, enforceable if the company decided to launch a competitive product and with a, another smart contract that had a much higher supply um, or decided to retire one contract and launch a new contract. Um, so we haven't seen that tension, I think, really yet play out. There have been a couple examples where projects have tried to make leaps from one to another or done token splits um, or even changed some degree of the inflation values. And it's a big rift with the community, but so far that's been the biggest damage and uh, sometimes it is recoverable. But uh, in terms of what, uh, what kind of protections really token holders have um, hitherto and then going forward, I'm really curious what, where you think that's headed. It, it, it's a really interesting question that you're asking. Matt, I think your remarks are, are spot on. In part, people are relying on the community to impose discipline on the projects to make sure that doesn't happen. Uh, in part, the technology helps, right? If you have to force a hard fork that may be very disruptive to what you're doing, and and so that, that may be a disincentive. I, I think from a legal standpoint, right now, token holders don't have particularly many rights. Uh, some tokens have features that allow for voting in, uh, about developments to the network or changes to the network, which should or probably could include excuse me, additional token issuances. I think that's a useful thing for people to think about. I sort of go back to the basic concepts that I articulated at the beginning of my remarks about the kinds of disclosures you're going to make. And people, I, I do think that when you say in your white paper, this is the token launch, this is the use of proceeds, and this is how many tokens are going to be out there, you are potentially subject to suit in the future 
either on a fraud theory or a breach of contract theory if you later issue new tokens. So you do need to be very careful about that from, from the legal perspective as well. So a couple points here just to conclude. Um, first, it's not uncommon for, for companies to issue uh, second and third classes of shares. So, so this isn't something that, that is, you know, totally uncommon in the corporate world anyways. Um, second, if you're going to have a token that is subordinate to another token within a, a blockchain-enabled network, um, that needs to be structured into the smart contract uh, right from the beginning. And um, my friend, Jordi Bellina, uh, was a wonderful technologist, uh, really leading a lot of uh, security and smart contracts work these days. I created this system called the Minimi token. And you can issue tokens that that are structured as a Minimi token, and then they can have derivative tokens from there. And there are projects that are working on this type of thing today because they understand that they may require you know, other types of derivative tokens to, to power their network. And, and, and their tokens will, will actually be sold with the understanding from day one that there will be derivative tokens. And the great thing about the Minimi token, and this is what, you know, the brilliance of Jordy, is the people who own the parent tokens have the rights to the Minimi tokens. Um, so you, have, you can either set it up as first right of refusal, or you can, you can sort of program a range of, of rights directly into that smart contract. Uh, and that makes sense, and I think we're going to see that, and I'm excited for those for those innovations. So maybe just to conclude, thank you all for coming tonight. Uh, thank you especially for all of the questions that were really interesting. We're going to be around, so please come up and uh, chat with us. We'd love to keep talking with everybody. Really quick, uh, just to... Um, two community announcements. Um, one is a plug for Lee's podcast. Um, really, really good. Um, and uh, just like the, the paper that they wrote, it's pretty accessible to a non-legal audience. So recommend that. And then uh, another request for a community announcement. I hand this over to Hong. Thank you, Matt. My name is Hong. Um, after months of preparation, we are launching a new venture fund via ICO uh, this summer. The fund is called Elysian Fund, like the Elysian world. Um, it focuses on um, blockchain and uh, artificial intelligence and uh, biotech, especially genomics. So what we are most excited about is the convergence of these three uh, sectors, where um, we can envision someday that um, everyone will put their genomic profile on blockchain, have full access and control of that data, and then annotate the genomic uh, profile with metadata, metadata, and so that subgroup of uh, genomic pro profile can be used for research. Uh, for instance, Alzheimer's disease, or diabetes, or certain cancer. Um, artificial intelligence plays a big role in this space, because through data mining um, with artificial intelligence, we eventually might be able to discover disease patterns related to genes. So we don't know too much about genomics right now. It's a massive data 
file, 80 gigabytes of it. So hopefully uh, through artificial intelligence, the convergence of all these uh, technologies, we will be able to discover diseases and eventually cure diseases. So the fund will invest in all the players in this system and um, uh, we are very happy to announce that we identified each player in all of these uh, stacks from the you know, gene sequencing to uh, metadata management database um, to artificial intelligence that drive the discovery and data mining to the computer models of cellular uh, models that will do uh, in silicon, meaning computer simulation of trials of drugs and, and stuff like that. So we're, um, we have experts on the advisory panel and so this is our fund we're launching this summer. So we're also looking for um, people who can volunteer or who can help uh, on a full-time basis to, to with community management, with uh, communication to potential investors about the philosophy of this fund. So if you're interested in helping or have some ideas, please come and see me. Thank you.